Instead, we're going to return to Romans chapter 14 this morning. <clears throat> we do have visitors. I know it's difficult for visitors sometimes to come in on a series. And this has been a uh, quite a number of months series on conscience and stumbling blocks. We're looking at the subject of stumbling blocks and we will take that up again today. Let me simply say that very often uh, one of the vital aspects of the Christian life, which is avoiding putting stumbling blocks before our brethren, is virtually ignored today. And uh, with the loose and often unbiblical notions of Christian liberty, we often uh, make it even easier to set stumbling blocks before our brothers and sisters. So I I do pray that... uh, For our visitors, you will not be lost in what we're looking at today. And for those of you that uh, have been following along, I pray that this will be a clear connection to what you've been hearing. We're going to read once again verses 9 through 15. If you would stand with me as we are all here in the presence of Almighty God. Let our hearts reverence. And rejoice in our God as we hear his word. And may his spirit speak to our souls. Romans 9. I'm sorry, Romans 14, verse 9. For to this end, both died and uh, Christ both died and rose and revived that he might be Lord, both of the dead and the living. But why dost thou judge thy brother? Or why dost thou set it not thy brother? Set it not is not a phrase we use very often today. It means to despise. Why do you think that your brother is nothing? Why do you despise him? <clears throat> so why dost thou set it not thy brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For it is written as I live saith the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then every one of us shall give account of himself to God. Let us not therefore judge one another anymore, but judge this rather, that no man put a stumbling block or an occasion to fall In his brother's way. I know and am persuaded by the Lord Jesus that there is nothing unclean of itself. But to him that esteemeth anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. But if thy brother be grieved with thy meat, now walkest thou not charitably. Destroy not him with thy meat or thy food for whom Christ is died. Amen. Amen. This is a precious and a deep well of God's truth that we need to have stamped on our hearts. Let's unite our hearts now in prayer. We come to thee, O righteous Father, on this day when we thank thee for the fathers thou hast given us. And Lord, 
I especially ask thy rich blessings upon those faithful fathers who are bringing their children up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, who are careful about their lives before their children, who walk according to the truth so that their children might see the commentary on what thy word says. O Christ, I thank thee for faithful fathers. Father, for those who are not, how I pray that thou wouldst come to them by the mighty power of thy spirit today. Open their hearts. Open their eyes. And show them what thou hast called them to be. Some may never have been taught these matters, even though they are plainly laid out in Scripture. Yet, O oh Father, some may simply be unconverted. Either way, O oh great and glorious God, we pray that in thy presence this morning, as our Father in heaven, send the power of thy spirit and word to enlighten us all. I pray especially for the children this morning, the young people, all those who know thee, and all them that do not. Help me to speak plainly. Help me to speak with care and caution. Help me to hide no truth. No, no matter how strong it may be to us. Now, Father, we want Christ exalted. This is our heart's desire. I need thy help. I cannot do that. I cannot do that in my power. Spirit of God, rush in like a gale force. Fill every heart. Fill every mind with the light of the word which thou didst so richly inspire. May every holy vowel May every holy particle of thy word speak to us this morning. O head of the church, Christ Jesus, help this feeble vessel to honor thee today and to feed thy sheep. Father, some, no doubt, will feast on the milk contained here. Others, O Lord, We'll be eating the meat of the word. Help me not to choke either. And now, O oh God, my, may thy spirit move powerfully here. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Please be seated. The sacred text is clear. Jesus Christ is Lord of all. Lord of the dead and Lord of the living. He died, rose again, and revived that whether we believers live or die, we are His. 
believers in Christ are his possession. They're his servants. Now it's true. We are brought into the family of God. We are sons alongside Christ. That's hard for us to imagine. But there are other aspects of our relationship to the living God that seem to be misunderstood, if not almost entirely rejected today. We use the word Lord, and it doesn't mean anything to us other than it's just part of the, uh, uh, the religious vocabulary. For some, it's almost like speaking in tongues because I've never thought of what the, the word Lord means. It means he's the boss. It means he is the absolute ruler. People say, I don't like it when, when preachers tell me what to do. Well, if they're faithful men, they're simply telling you what Christ has told you to do. And there's not any argument about that. They're just bowing or rebelling. There's no other option. Jesus Christ is the Lord. He died and rose again. And he has been given the glorious reign over his people. But also his reign over all things. And the day will come when all the nations of this world will bow to him. How tragic and common it is that Jesus' blood-bought servants then judge and despise one another. He has bought us, we're all his servants, Paul even says, how dare you judge another man's servant? That other man is Christ. How dare you judge or despise his blood-bought people? And often that arises from conscience controversies. Not primary doctrine, though sometimes that's clearly a debate among God's people, not secondary doctrine, though more often those are the matters hotly debated, but conscience matters. And we've given much time to defining and explaining and applying that. God's people can't judge one another well, so why do we continue to do it? We don't know what's going on in somebody's heart. Looks can be deceiving. We don't always know what is driving someone. We don't know the experiences that they've had. And yet we're quite certain that we can correct them. Now there are times when we must. But it must always be according to the light of God's word. Not our preferences. We have to know the word of God well enough To distinguish between what is commanded and forbidden in the infallible word of God and the rightful deductions that come from it and our personal preferences. Got to walk carefully. For God's people to judge and despise one another 
should not be so. Each of God's servants will stand before the judgment seat of Christ, the text plainly says. Every knee will bow and every tongue shall confess to God. All believers will give account of themselves. Nobody here is going to give account for me. And I'm not going to give account for anybody here. You will give account of you to God. Not me, not to any pastor, not to something called the Pope. No one but Christ the Lord. So, we will give account of ourselves in that great, solemn, and approaching day. We are, and I never get tired of saying this, a day closer. You are a day closer to account day. Or facing an everlasting destruction in hell. So Paul tells us that if we truly want to judge something, if you're up for it and you really want to judge something, judge this. Let no believer in Jesus Christ put a stumbling block in another Christian's way. By doing so, we can ruin a person for whom Christ died. The early church preacher, John Chrysostom, said, quote, He that ruins his brother hath at once subverted peace and wronged joy more grievously than he that plunders money. And what is worse is that another Christ that another saved him, and thou wrongest and ruinest him. In other words, it's simply another way of expressing what Paul has said in the text. To sin against one for whom Christ died. It is a, a horrible, it is a heinous sin. Now, for those of you that have not been with us, we have worked through certain portions of uh, Romans chapter 14 and 1 Corinthians chapters 8 through 10 as we've considered the matter of conscience. We've been taking within an extended series a fairly extended group of applications for one specific issue, and that's stumbling blocks. Something said or done in such a way that it causes someone to sin or it hinders their walk with Christ. So the title of our message is Stumbling Your Family. This is part five. May our Heavenly Father's great gift to us today be His presence, His power, and His peace. In Christ Jesus, our Lord. And may we know, may we truly understand, believe, and know the love of Christ. 
which passeth knowledge, and make his spirit brand his word forever in our hearts and make us more like the Savior. Since the matter of stumbling blocks is so serious, we have asked the question, and it's been our main point for weeks now, in what ways can we stumble others? Entire books have been written on this. So it's something that I urge you to do more reading on. We often don't think of all the ways we might stumble someone else. And it's very possible to do it without even trying, especially with no intention whatsoever. Uh, as, as usual, I, I don't mind using my own failings to uh, give a good illustration of what I'm talking about. Of all people... <clears throat> In the congregation, the pastors should be the ones most concerned about causing anyone else to stumble. Pastor Clarence and I are watched carefully and closely. And very often things that we would do uh, that don't even cross our minds as problematic can be a trouble for someone else. We have to be careful, not because we're great <laughs> and public sinners, but because we're fallible men. <clears throat> I keep myself accountable to my wife on my computer. When I'm racing through the news headlines and just trying to get something of a sense of what is taking place out there, occasionally immodest pictures show up. And they're far more now than there ever used to be. My wife receives <clears throat> the picture or the link to the page. Sometimes they're so wretched, I just send her the link. I don't even want to clip the picture. I don't want to see it again. <clears throat> and I send it to her. She understands. And, and, if, and I always say, I was doing this when I ran into that. Because if I don't, and I just send her a picture, she's going to say, what were you doing? Where were you that you got flashed with this? Now, I never liked that question, but I must have it. Right? If that's not happening, men can find ways to quiet their conscience. And so last week, Without realizing it, <clears throat> Mount Zion starts with an M. Myra starts with an M. When I'm in a hurry, I hit a letter and then send. That was the wrong thing to do. Because it was supposed to go to Myra, and it went to Mount Zion Bible Church. Now, that was not my purpose I had no desire to stumble anybody. I know that for certain men, that may certainly have been a stumbling block. No intention whatsoever. But you can stumble people without trying. We must be cautious. We must be careful. So, it's something done in such a way in such a way, those words are absolutely vital to the definition. It's something 
said or done in such a way that causes someone to sin or impedes, slows down, puts up an obstruction for their walk with Christ. Now that being said then, we can stumble others in many, many ways. And just a careful read of Scripture is, uh, is enough to show you. So we're dealing with stumbling others in the family. This is what we've covered so far. For those of you that, not with, uh, that have not been with us, I hope this review will at least help a little bit. But <clears throat> uh, we begin with stumbling your spouse. Or we began with stumbling your spouse. Husbands can stumble their wife by not loving her as Christ loves the church. It is a command. It is a command, a holy command, a good command, a sweet Christ-like command to love your wife with a self-denying, self-sacrificing love. And we're not doing that. We're in rebellion against the head of the church. And when we don't do that, our wives, without hesitation, can and probably will stumble at various points because they're not being loved or cherished as the scripture sets before us. Wives can stumble their husband by disrespecting him. Might be in private, might be in front of the children, might be at church, might be out in public. There are times when wives, in their frustrations, some of them justified, some of them not, begin to disrespect their head, the one that Christ has set over them in the matter of headship. Wives can stumble their husbands by disrespectful words, disrespectful Attitudes, disrespectful actions. Well, you can stumble your children. Parents can and they do. Even the very best of parents fail because every father on this planet that has been or ever will be is a sinner. Sinners have a way of sinning and of failing even with their best desires. And the same thing with mothers. Parents can stumble their children by ignoring family worship. That is one of the worst stumbling blocks you put before your children. When they're younger, they don't notice. When they get older, they will begin to realize, you know what? Dad, Mom... The pastor brings out all of these things about what the Lord calls us to as his people. And he makes it really clear. Even I can understand it. But that's not going on here in my house. And don't think that in some children, no matter how sweet they are, that that cannot provoke a genuine hatred. You are kidding yourself. 
It can provoke. It can stoke rebellion. Not only that, it can turn them out of the way. <laughs> if my mom and dad are the examples of what Christianity is about, I'm finding something else. Parents can stumble their children by ignoring family worship, praying, singing, reading the word of God together. Secondly, parents can stumble their children by neglecting to discipline them. Number three, parents can stumble their children by unjust commands and punishments. And finally, parents can stumble their children by sinful anger. There's a place for righteous indignation. Don't misunderstand me. I hope I made that clear. But if I didn't, let me say again in a slightly different way. There are times, especially when your children are older and they understand more and they've lived with you longer and they've watched you and heard you. There are times when they do something sinful, not just unfortunately knocking over a glass of milk on the table, but <clears throat> when they literally defy or uh, defy what you have told them or just continue in a particular action that you've corrected over and over again. There are times when... They need to know you're not happy. In fact, you're angry. A righteous indignation because they are rebelling against what the word of God plainly says. And they need to know. But sinful anger is destruction. Well, that brings us this morning to the reverse. Stumbling your parents. What? <laughs> well, children can stumble their parents. Now, children and young people, before we talk about how you can stumble your parents, I must ask you a question. I want your attention. Children, young people, Listen up. How would you answer this? Do you know who and what you really are? I hear people all the time saying, I don't know who I am. Now, <laughs> we can make fun of that. But any of us that have ever struggled with that know exactly what's being said there. It's not like, oh, I need to look at my driver's license so I know who I am. We're not looking for a tag. We're not looking for a name. I'm not searching for your name. It's a question about the reality and the nature of your existence. Who are you? And what are you? To answer that crucial question, let me begin with your origin, where you came from. The book of Genesis is very clear. It's explicit. It declares in the first chapter, so God, the Almighty, the All-Knowing, 
the all-present. That glorious, infinite, eternal, wise, gracious, merciful, and loving God. And so much more. God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. And God blessed them. And God said unto them, Be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. So, who are you? You're an image bearer of God. That is who you are. And that's an extraordinary being. You didn't descend from an ape. You are made in the image of the almighty God. The holy, holy, holy God. And with an immortal soul you will live. In this world until you die. And in the world to come, you will live for eternity. Lying down in the flames of hell. Or living in the glorious presence of Jesus Christ. And reigning with him for all of eternity. There are no other options. That's it. That's who you are. Now, let me put it to you this way. <clears throat> As an image bearer of God, that's who you are and it is inescapable. You will never change that. You cannot change that. You didn't think it up. You didn't invent it in a test tube. You didn't find it on another planet. That's who you are and it is inescapable. Now, let's consider what you are. <clears throat> text tells us, look at the text. <laughs> Male and female created he them. Once again, that's it. You are a male with XY chromosomes or a female with XX chromosomes. That is what you are. You're a male or you're a female. There's not another option. That is what you are, and it is inescapable. You can do everything you want to that body to say that you're something else, but you're not. The differences between the sexes 
are significantly genetically, biologically, psychologically, and anatomically unchangeable. You are one or the other. No other options exist. Now, our culture doesn't believe that. Fathers, let me give a footnote in here for you. Your children better understand why they're a male or a female and that that's what they are and that they will not change that. You can change the outside, but you cannot change the DNA. You cannot change what it is and what it means to be male or female. You can chop and channel it, but you will never, at its core, change it. This is not to to, uh, argue vociferously. This is not to try to run down anyone who is struggling with those issues. And there are those who deeply and powerfully struggle with them. And in my opinion, it will take much grace, mercy, and wisdom on the part of Christians to deal with people who have wrestled that particular issue. But the point is, this morning, <clears throat> you need to realize that you didn't descend from an ape. You weren't seeded here by aliens eons and eons ago. You are not a male in a female body, and you are not a female in a man's body. You are God's image bearer as a male or a female. And you have an immortal soul. And the shocking line that comes after that is that you can lose that immortal soul. What shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world but lose his own soul? And all those without Christ will lose their own souls. Now, we go back and look at the text again in Genesis 1 and consider the two projects that God gave male and female. Two important projects. Have babies... And take dominion over every living thing on earth. Both projects are inseparably connected to the words male and female. Now again, our culture does not believe that and is working and doing everything it can to make, quote, wombs for men and are working to do what they can to create life, quote, 
in the laboratory. <clears throat> Let me simply say, everything you believe in the scriptures about male and female is under fire right now, intensely, in every high office and in every school in this nation, in this world, with the exception perhaps of some Christian schools. But even some of them are caving to some of this stuff. Now, and you need to understand, this is not an accident. This is an all-out war against God's word and God's people. And if you don't get that, the next couple of years are probably going to be terribly unpleasant for you. God's word says, male, female, be fruitful and multiply, take dominion. Part of the taking dominion is having babies not murdering them in mama's womb, not doing everything we can not to have one. God's eternal purpose is expressed, among other things, in the words male and female. Again, look at the text and consider God's almighty Creative power. If you read Genesis 1 over and over, one of the things that you can't miss is that it says, and God said, and it happened. And God said, and it happened. And God said, and it happened. Now the text here says, God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply and replenish and subdue and have dominion. Notice, God's blessing came before the two tasks. God blessed them. And then God said. The two things are going together. The outpouring and the expression of God's goodness upon male and female. The sacred text says that male and female together can produce male or female children. But far too many of us stop at the, oh, I want to have children part. Now, there's nothing wrong with that desire. Not at all. But the fact of the matter is, children are God's image bearers and he gives them to you to bring up for him. Parents that are not doing that are living in rebellion against God. He gave those children. The Lord doesn't give us children just so that we have something else to gripe about. Able to 
do that? How were they able to bring image bearers into the world? Well, it's all connected to the notion of male and female. Those of you reaching for the oxygen bottle, I'm not about to give a description of the union between men and women. Listen carefully to the explanation of the word blessed. This is given by the New International Dictionary of Old Testament Theology and Exegesis. Quote, the first thing that God did after creating human life was to pronounce his blessing over the works of his hands. The emphasis here is on the life-infusing power of the divine word. That's the idea. And God blessed them and said, the two things are going together. God's blessing, as he said. We go back to the dictionary. <clears throat> the emphasis here is on the life-infusing power of the divine word. God's blessing is his formative, empowering word. Let there be light. There was light. Separate the seas and the dry land. And that's what happened. The two are going together here. It isn't just, well, God had a couple of words to say. This was powerful. It was an expression of his power. He blessed the male and the female to reproduce his image bearers. The dictionary goes on to say, it is not an empty pronouncement or simply an expression of wish or goodwill, nor is it a bare command. Rather, the blessing of God has content. It actualizes and it enables. Close quote. So in this context, God blessing, God's blessing is a creative power that makes Something real. It makes something real and it empowers it. I think we'd all say the last few days we've, we've experienced something of the power of the sun. God made it. He hung it up in the sky and the heat that falls upon us is all his work. And he said, be there. Mm. You know, for that very reason, the psalmist says, let all, let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. Why? For he spake and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. That sun's not going to fall until the Lord tells it to the moon and the stars are not going to fall till we're ready for the spectacle and the miracle of Christ's return. They're not going anywhere. He commanded, and it stood fast. By the way, the Hebrew and Aramaic lexicon of the Old Testament agrees with this. In this verse, blessing means to endue someone with special power. That's a short way of saying it. 
to endue means to give someone ability, to give someone the ability of a special power. What is that special power? Creating image bearers. It's not just about having a nice little cuddly thing that we enjoy and that maybe gives us just a little more joy than our spouse. It's about bringing his image bearers into this world and bringing them up for him. That's no small task. That takes the power of God to do that well. So, what was it that God made a reality with special power? Having babies. It just seems so natural. It just seems so normal. It says anybody can do it. They don't realize it's not just about babies. It is about immortal souls. It is about creation in the image of God. That's important. Furthermore, the Spirit of Christ said through the psalmist, Lo, children are a heritage of the Lord, and the fruit of the womb is His reward. And most of you know that verse, I understand. But children, notice, are an inheritance of the Lord. It's the idea of heritage, an inheritance. God is giving you something that comes from him. What? (laughs) Are you getting this? Lost people could say, well, I want to get married, have a couple of kids, you know, have a swimming pool and a nice car. Okay, well, that's fine. Anybody can say that. But Christians have been sucked up into that view. For us, children are part of a community of life. Life, not death. Children are an inheritance. Children are a reward from God to your parents. Children, you need to hear this. (laughs) I mean, it's true sometimes to go, "Mm, some gift. That's just on the bad days. The fact of the matter is, many Christian parents haven't gotten it. Like I said, it's like, oh, let's get married, let's have some children because... Somewhere in the Bible says we ought to. This is about God's image bearers and the the very eternal purpose of Almighty God. That is no little thing. Children, when you grow up, young people, as you're growing up and moving toward adulthood, you will have the power from God to reproduce more of His image bearers. So every child that God gives anyone, anywhere, anytime, is his image bearer and part of his eternal purpose. And that baby will live in this world, as I said earlier. That baby will live in this world until he or she dies. And that person's never dying soul will live 
in the horrors of hell or the glory and the beauty, the presence of Christ and all the citizens of those regions of glory. Now, I want to say again, children and young people, listen carefully. You must know a solemn reality. You have three deadly enemies. Any one of them can destroy your life and damn you for eternity. Number one, your heart. That's your biggest enemy. Number two, the world, the culture under the power of the enemy of your soul. And number three, the enemy of your soul, Satan and other demonic entities. Yes, Satan is real. Demons are real. Some of us here probably trafficked in them without realizing it. And not only that, but Jesus will tell you the problem with you with clarity. And I say this, I want to say this as gently as I can because I know what I am. But young people, children, you must get this. Jesus says, for from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lasciviousness, an eye, an evil eye, greed, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and defile the man. John Calvin once said that, uh, and, and Brother Clarence um, made reference to this last Wednesday evening. John Calvin once said that man's nature is a perpetual factory of idols. Now, for our use, as we're coming close to this issue now, <clears throat> for our use, children, we're going to modify Calvin's words to this. Your heart, your biggest enemy, is a perpetual factory of stumbling blocks. And many of them will be set right in front of your parents. God has commanded your parents to bring you up for him. And yet, while he is so gracious to give us the children and tells us to bring them up for him, he doesn't give us the power of the Holy Spirit to transform them. We're to live a transformed life before them or we're helping to damn them. Got that? And children, you 
can spew out stumbling blocks all the time. When your heart's desire is just the foolishness of, of youth. Your parents are given as our pastors an impossible job without his wonderful grace. We have to have his grace in order for our children to be converted to the living God. I heard the same story again this week. A pastor friend of mine called me and wrestling over a fellow pastor and the fellow pastor had I had uh, about seven children and two, the, the upper two had defected. They had left uh, the home life understanding of Christianity and had gone to get an easier rock and roll Christianity. And he said that the pastor asked him, and I can't tell you how many times I've heard of this. what did I do wrong that they did this? You know what the answer is? You did plenty wrong. You can't save them. Your children are not going to be saved by your works any more than they are by their works. God opens the heart. Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. Same covenant womb. Now, let me hasten to say I think most Christians should look with great joy and eager anticipation that the Lord will save their children. And we have brothers and sisters who use certain verses a particular way to say that, well, you know, if if we do it right, are you serious? How right do you think you have to be for God to say, okay, I'll save your children? Children. Your parents have been given a very difficult task, and that is to bring you up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. They have the Holy Spirit, and you may become a possessor of the Holy Spirit at a very young age. That's what every parent here wants, but it doesn't always happen. You're going to have to trust the Lord entirely with your children. Some of them that even start off looking great end up walking away from the faith. And some of them that look like, I don't even know what to do with this, you know, become very sound and solid Christians later on. It is all in God's sovereign hand. You're to bring them up. God gives the new heart. So, over again, I had a father sit in my living room. His daughter had gone away and gotten interested in a man that he didn't approve of. And and I've seen this. It rips my heart out. Tears streaming down his face. He stood up out of the chair. And he went, why did I do all of this? 
If that's what she was going to do. Did you hear the problem? He was doing it for the result. We're to do it for the glory of God. We want the result, but we have to look to God alone. Now, we're getting right now to the point that we want to consider carefully. And it goes like this. Children and young people, I've spent a good bit of time telling you from the Word of God who you are and what you are. And because of that, there's a wide open door for you to hurt your parents like nobody else on the planet. They've, many of them have prayed, Lord, give us children, and the Lord's given them. And then at a certain age, at a certain time, one of them begins to go astray. And what do you do? If you've ever tried arm wrestling God, it's not a long fight. I want you to understand it's because you're an image bearer of God. They love you. They want you to know Christ and they want you to have everlasting life. They want to be able to fellowship with you. They want the day to come when they will hear you praying, not not the, the, the half-hearted prayers you prayed when you were younger. But to hear you crying out to the living God and fellowshipping with God. And they long for that day when it's not just mom and dad, but brother and sister. They're earnestly and they're vulnerable because they're pouring out their lives that you might know the truth. In my book, the Christian homeschoolers are radical heroes because they understood if you take your children and put them under atheistic or lying false doctrine, it's going to claim an incredible number of them, and you see our culture. And they said no. And when it started, when Myra and I started, It was against the law in many states. Now it's a fad. But I'm saying to you, brethren, those people said, I'm going to protect these children. I'm going to bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. I want them to know that the name Jesus Christ is not a curse word. I want them to know that Jesus is the Son of God, who became the eternal Son of God who became flesh to save his people from their sins who carried his cross until he fell under it and went and hung upon that wretched wooden torture stake that people like you and me might be forgiven of all our sins by childlike faith in him. Rising again the third day, ascending into glory, 
interceding for his people, coming again and presiding over the day of judgment. That Christ. We want our children to know Christ. Children, we want you to know him. Now we can tell you. You can clean up your room or you're going to lose your privileges. But we can't say you're going to live a holy life and make it work. We can teach them the principles so that if God opens their heart, they already have a leg up. That's what happened to Paul, isn't it? As a man born out of time, at, his, at God's time, he took that Pharisee and gave him a new heart. He didn't do it when he was five, didn't do it when he was 10, didn't do it when he was 18. But God prepared him. He became a Pharisee. He came to a, a very, very extraordinary knowledge of the scriptures. But it was all in the dark. He was persecuting the very Messiah by persecuting his people that he believed was going to come. And God opened his heart. He was prepared. All of a sudden, all the scriptures began to make sense. And he began to understand and to preach. Where did he preach Christ from? The Old Testament, which he knew. Now, your children, don't stop. Parents, keep saying, you know, here's the way, here's the truth, here's the life, it's in Christ Jesus. Now, don't beat them over the head every day and say, you know, you become a Christian today. You're not going to force them into it. If you can, somebody can force them out of it. Got that? It's God's work. But because of that, they're vulnerable. You can hurt them a lot. Your choices can cause them to stumble. I'm not trying to put a guilt trip on anybody. I'm telling you the facts. Children, God, our creator, your creator has commanded you, honor thy father and thy mother. Now, do not protest. Oh, well, that's just the Old Testament. No, hear what Paul, the apostle to the Gentile Ephesians said. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor thy father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise. Here he is preaching that to Gentiles. What's wrong with that former Pharisee? Isn't he confusing gospel and law? No, he's using it right under the power of the Holy Spirit. Listen to what he says to the Gentile Colossians. Children, obey your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing unto the Lord. Now, why does this matter? Because God has appointed two of his representatives to bring you up for him. And if you rebel against them, you're rebelling against God. And your rebellions can stumble them. Considering the time, we will finish this next week. There are many, many passages I'm about to go over, so we want to go through them next week without a rush. 
Here's what I want to leave you with for this day. You understand, every child here, you're an image bearer of God. There is something about you that is remarkable. There is something about you that's eternal. You have an immortal soul. But you also know there is something wrong going on in your heart. Just heard the testimony of someone recently brought up in a Christian home that said, I knew sin was wrong, but in my heart, really liked it. Mm -hmm. That's why we need new hearts. That's why the power of the Holy Spirit must come and do that transforming new creation work. What we do as parents is to bring you up, point you to Christ, praying earnestly, earnestly that God in his mercy will come and open your eyes and cause you to see your need of Christ. Again, there's not a formula that tricks or gets your children into the kingdom. That is the work of Almighty God through the power of His Holy Spirit and Word. But we see it often. That's one of the reasons He puts children in a Christian home. He wants you to bring up that nation for Him. And we often see throughout the history of the church wonderful works of God in saving many, if not all, children in a particular family. So my brethren, I want to say to the parents, especially dads, stay the course. Keep walking with Christ. Keep praying. Keep living the truth before your children. Don't make them hate Christianity because of you unless they just utterly despise every righteous thing you do. Brethren, with faithful wives, stay the course. For those of you in that course and fighting the good fight, I know some of you carry wounds. May God bless your wounds and heal them. And for you children... For those that know Christ, as we'll talk about next week, you have a responsibility to your brothers and sisters to shine the light of Christ. You're to live according to the word of God. You've been taught by your parents. Now start taking those lessons and using them so that your brothers and sisters don't despise the faith because of the way you treat them. <clears throat> those of you that don't know the Savior, you hear the word preached, you hear the calls to come, and I repeat it. Come. Jesus said, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden. Do you understand that you're lost? Come to Christ. He saves, He gives a new heart. Repent of your sins. Believe on the crucified and resurrected God-man. He receives sinners. 
Do you know that you're a sinner? And come to Christ. Come to Christ. Come to Christ. We long for, we pray, and brethren, now over the last year and a half, two years, we've seen the Lord answering prayers. There are more children beginning to turn to Christ and giving some good evidence they truly want to walk with the Lord. We're praying for all the rest of you. I went through all the names of all of the children this morning, praying for your souls. Your parents are praying for your souls. Your friends who know the Lord are praying for your souls. You must deal with Christ. Come, he's a willing Savior. And we will take up there, God willing, next week. Please be in prayer because after this, we will look at how we can stumble a congregation and we will consider some of the aspects of our relationship to government and we shall be done for the time being with that subject. But it's easy to put a stumbling block in front of anybody from pastors to children. We can cause others to sin. May we be wise and may we pray. We will also spend at least one message on going through the ways that we should care for others so that we, at the very least, lessen how much we stumble others. May Christ be exalted and may all our hearts be drawn up to him in prayer for the lost and for our sanctification. Holy Father, I praise and thank thee for thy goodness. Help us. Help us. We need thee. We need thy power. We pray for the children. We pray for the young people. And oh, my Savior, I pray that we will continue to see thy mighty spirit coursing through this place, moving in this place, opening the hearts of children and adults alike. Father, there are adults that are sitting here have just enough religion to be damned for eternity with Christ on their lips, but never believed in. Oh, God, have mercy. And Father, upon thy dear children, may we rejoice in thee in this day. May we love thee and love thy people. All in the name of Christ Jesus, our Savior. Amen.